The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Daniel 10, 7 through 11. Only I, Daniel, saw the vision. The men who were with me did not see it, but a great terror fell on them and they ran and hid. I was left alone, looking at this great vision. No strength was left in me. My face grew deathly pale, and I was powerless. I heard the words he said, and when I heard them, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Suddenly, a hand touched me and set me shaking on my hands and knees. He said to me, Daniel, you are a man treasured by God. Understand the words that I'm saying to you. Stand on your feet. For I have been sent to you. And he said this to me. I stood trembling. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thanks, Jenny. So when I was in high school one year, I was part of the school play. I'm sure a lot of you have been to a school play before. And you know, the play normally opens when the the curtain on stage uh, is drawn back. And you see the set and the actors and the play begins. Well, this... This play began a little bit differently. Myself and another actor, we sort of came on stage in front of the curtain from a side entrance, and we stood there in front of the curtain, and we dialogued back and forth for a few moments, and then on a predetermined cue, the curtain opened, and we joined a scene that was taking place behind the curtain. Well, during one performance, as we're talking out in front of the curtain, our our dialogue got just a little bit messed up, and even though we covered it well, it caused the curtain operator to miss the cue. And so I, I remember that we finished speaking, ready to join the scene, and the curtain didn't open. And it was probably only like a few seconds. It felt like an eternity as we're standing there. I mean, you've already got the stage makeup on and lights, so I'm, I'm sure I was visibly sweating just racking my brain with like, what do I do now? How do I, how do I make it happen? What's going on behind there? Is anyone paying attention? Are they even there? Like this feeling of utter powerlessness. Well, today's passage, Daniel 10, it reminds me of that moment on stage, feeling helpless, wondering what was happening behind the curtain. Daniel, by this point in the book, we know he's an old man and he's received all of these visions of the future and he feels overwhelmed, he feels powerless, like what can he do about it? What should he do about it? And then we see in this chapter that God in his grace pulls back the curtain just a little bit and gives Daniel a peek of what's happening. He, he shows Daniel that he is at work and that Daniel's not alone. Have you ever felt powerless? Maybe it was in the face of a, a serious diagnosis or in an abusive relationship. Maybe it was because of a, a choice your child is making or a bully at school, a, a new policy at work or an unexpected bill that comes from nowhere. And in those moments when we feel our powerless, we can wonder, does God care? Is Is he doing anything? Does any of this matter? Is there any reason for hope? And and what we see in this chapter is that in Daniel's moment of just sort of utter powerlessness, 
that God gives him this glimpse. And in this glimpse, he shows Daniel and he shows us that even when everything feels hopeless, God is at work. In fact, he gives Daniel a glimpse of three things behind the curtain. And these, these glimpses encourage and strengthen Daniel to keep trusting God in the face of great difficulty and uncertainty. Before we get to the glimpses, let's, let's just spend a moment looking at the context of this chapter. It takes place three years after the fall of Babylon. Look at, me with, look at verse 1 with me. It says, in the third year of King Cyrus or King Darius, two names, same person, of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel who was named Belteshazzar. The message was true and was about a great conflict. He understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. Babylon is no more. Remember when the book opened we, that we started studying months ago, it opens with mighty Babylon, just it's sort of going everywhere and it's taking, it's, it's taking conquest and taking possession of Jerusalem and other places and all of a sudden it's gone, just gone, it's no more. Not only that, but the Babylonian gods who are given credit for the defeat over Israel, they're no more. It says there, Daniel was named Belshazzar. He was given that name. It was a name to honor these victorious Babylonian gods. And it says, well, past tense, he was named. He's no longer named after them because the God of Israel has outlasted the God of wood and stone. This is the third year of life under Persia. The exiles in Israel have started to return back to Jerusalem. We're told in the book of Ezra that, that the king Cyrus... He allowed the Israelites to, to start to return home, and they're going to rebuild Jerusalem. They're going to start to, to put back in order what was destroyed by Babylon. And for some reason, Daniel's not able to go with them. Maybe it's his age. Maybe it's his role in serving in, in Persia. We're not sure, but he's not able to go. And so these are the, the circumstances where Daniel receives the final vision in the book. And so chapter 10 talks about what's happening in the circumstances, and then chapters 11 and 12, we'll look at those next week, they detail the final vision. Well, Daniel, verse 2 tells us, receives the vision at the end of a three-week fast, where he's, he's given up intentionally all luxury. So it says he hasn't eaten any good food, he, he hasn't drunk any good wine, he hasn't used any oils or lotions. In other words, he hasn't used all of the sort of luxuries that were available to him to make life more comfortable. He's, he's refused those because he's in a period of mourning, but we're not told why he's mourning. It could be because of the difficulties that have been experienced by those exiles returning to Jerusalem, we know from the books of Ezra and Nehemiah that when they returned there, it wasn't easy, that there was opposition. And Daniel may have heard these reports. Maybe he's mourning because of that. And maybe it's because verse 4 tells us this was the time of Passover. This was the time, the annual most important feast in the life of the Israel, of Israel the nation when they recognized their deliverance by God out of Egypt and Daniel is still far from home. And maybe he's mourning because he realizes that he's never, he's never returning. Though he may pray with his windows open Jerusalem that he is physically not going back. And that he will never have again that experience of carrying a lamb into the temple to be offered as a sacrifice. Or maybe it's because of all the difficulty that's coming. These visions that we've been reading, all of them promise that even though they return home, that this isn't the end of difficulty. In fact, there's coming a period of even worse suffering. And so maybe that's why. Whatever the reason, we're just told Daniel's mourning for three weeks. He's praying. 
He's fasting. He's far from home. He's grieving. He's helpless. And then God speaks. God pulls back the curtain and he just lets Daniel have these glimpses of what he's doing. And these glimpses behind the curtain, they're meant to encourage Daniel and they're meant to encourage us. So here's the first glimpse Daniel gets. He gets a glimpse of Christ's majesty. So this vision Daniel gets here begins with a man. Now, as I read the description, I want you to ask, who do I think this is? Because there's a lot of debate about this man's identity. So look at verse 4. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up and there was a man dressed in linen with a belt of gold from Euphaz. That's just a, a fancy gold around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the brilliance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. So is this man an angel? Possibly Gabriel, or is he someone even greater, God himself or the messianic son of God? Now, I've already told you what I think, right? I I cheated and told you up front. I think, and I'm confident, this is a vision of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of God. Let me show you why. Notice first how he's dressed. It says he's dressed in a linen garment with a gold, gold belt or gold sash around his waist. So in the book of Leviticus, where we read all of these instructions about how Israel is supposed to worship and, and what their priests are supposed to do, and one thing we're told is their priests are supposed to clothe themselves in linen when performing all of their duties. In fact, we're told later in Leviticus that the high priest, the On the Day of Atonement, which is the most important day in Israel's annual calendar, the day when he enters and he meets God on behalf of the people and he offers a lamb to atone for the sins of the people, that this is how he's supposed to dress. Leviticus 16, verse 4 says, He is to wear a holy linen tunic, and linen undergarments are to be on his body. He is to tie a linen sash around him and wrap his head with a linen turban. So this man here, he's dressed as a priest, but notice he's got an accessory that's foreign to that of priests. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. It's, this is not a trick question. And you don't need to know anything about the Bible or anything about history. I think you can just figure this out. Who wears belts made of gold? You can answer two things. Rich people, right? Or kings, and in most of human history, that's the same thing, right? It's kings who wear belts made of gold. Normal people, regular people, don't wear belts made of gold because they don't have gold to fashion into belts. And so only a king could afford a belt. And so you have this man, he's dressed as both priest and king. Now look at verse 6, which describes him in symbolic form. It says his body is made of beryl. Beryl is this beautiful crystal, and it's sort of got this translucent aquamarine color and it just, it was, it was precious in that time because it was so unique. Then it says his face shines so brightly you can't even see his features. It's like staring at a lightning bolt. Do you realize one lightning bolt is as bright as 100 million light bulbs? Now, now imagine that much light emanating from someone's face. We understand that if you were to actually look into it, it would blind you instantly. Yet somehow from this blinding light radiating from his face, it says you can see his eyes, and his eyes are like flaming torches. Now, what do you use a torch for? Well, a torch you take into darkness, maybe into a cave, maybe on a journey, and that torch 
allows you to see. And so it's used throughout Scripture as a symbol of, of wisdom and understanding. And so the idea is this face radiates so brightly you can't even see its features, and yet somehow the eyes shine through with a depth of wisdom and understanding that you can look and you, you recognize in this person someone who understands everything. His arms and feet are like brass, so they're powerful. You know, sometimes people joke that this person has, he has the body, the bronzed body of a god. Well, that's what Daniel is saying here. Literally, he looks like this supernatural, supernaturally strong man, that he's immensely strong and beautiful. And then finally, he says his voice sounds like you're standing under Niagara Falls. It roars like a stadium at full volume. Each word he speaks echoes like a symphony playing the final note. The power of his speech can shake the foundations of a building and melt the heart of a man. So is this Jesus? Yes. Let me give you three reasons why I'm confident. Here's the first one. Because the coming Messiah is described throughout the Old Testament as both king and priest. That he is a priest. He intercedes on behalf of his people. He is the, the one who who goes before God on behalf of his people like a priest does, but he's more than that, he's a king. And he's a king unlike the kings of the nations. Second, this highly symbolic language that's used to describe his appearance, it fits the descriptions of God in the Old Testament. So when God is described in the Old Testament, he has to be described in symbolic fashion because God is spirit. He doesn't have a body. So you can't say like, you know, God's a guy with brown hair. God's the guy, I mean, if you see him, he's got blue eyes. That's how you can pick him out. God's about 5'9 and 3 quarters. God, God weighs about 165 pounds. Like, God's got, he's got some good biceps on it. Like, you can't describe God this way because God has no body. Right? God is spirit. And so Jesus, the Son of God, and this point in history has to be described in these symbolic ways because he has not yet taken on human form. Jesus doesn't come in the flesh. He doesn't unite God and man in his person until that first Christmas morn. The prophet Ezekiel, he has a vision of God in Ezekiel 1, and he actually describes God in a very similar symbolic way, trying to capture something about the glory of God. Then third, and this is the reason I'm most confident, in the opening chapter of the book of Revelation, the apostle John sees a vision of Jesus, and we know from our study of Daniel, right, Daniel and Revelation are tied tightly together. But he sees a vision of Jesus, and listen to how he describes him. Revelation 1. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man. Now that's a title from Daniel, right? For the Messiah. Dressed in a robe and with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. So this description of Jesus in Revelation 1 fits almost exactly the description we see here in Daniel 10. So what, what happens then when Daniel is given this glimpse of the glory of Jesus? Look at verse 7. Only I, Daniel, saw the vision. The men who were with me did not see it, but a great terror fell on them, and they ran and hid. I was left alone looking at this great vision, no strength was left in me. My face grew deathly pale, and I was powerless. I heard the words he said, and when I heard them, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Like Daniel, 
is overwhelmed. And this is what happens when, when a man, when a human being meets God and sees even a hint of his glory. So in the Old Testament, Moses goes up on the mountain, he meets with God, and it says when he comes down from meeting with God, his face shines so brightly that the people were, begged him to either not speak with them at all or at least to cover himself in a veil because they were so terrified by God's glory radiating from Moses' face. Or Jesus, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and soldiers come to arrest him, and just for a moment when he speaks, some of his, his glory comes out in such a way that it says these soldiers, these armed soldiers coming to one man, fall over. Well, the Apostle Paul, before he becomes a Christian, he is leading a, a band of soldiers to persecute and kill Christians. And there on a road, one day, all of a sudden, a bright light shines and it blinds him. And those with him are struck dumb. Or the Apostle John, who is called the beloved disciple. This was a friend of Jesus who walked with him. And yet when he sees that vision in Revelation 1, you know what happens? It says he falls over as if he had died. I mean, do you understand the majesty of Jesus? This book of Daniel is written to help you see that human governments, kings and presidents, palaces and parliaments, with all of their pomp and circumstance, their money and pageantry, their crowds and courts, are like dust in the wind compared to Jesus Christ. And so let me just encourage you, brothers and sisters, when you feel powerless when you feel unworthy, when you feel helpless, when you don't know what to do or if anything can be done, take a glimpse at Jesus. The author of Hebrews says this, that when you are running the race and you don't feel like you can endure, when the finish line is there and you don't think you can make it, when sin like heavy weight seems to be pulling you down and you know that's where you're headed and you're like, there's no way I can get there. It says this, look to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he is sitting majestically at the right hand of the Father. Look to him, see something of his majesty and glory when you're about to give up and quit. And understand he will strengthen you. He will sustain you. Daniel, in his hopelessness, is encouraged by a glimpse of the majesty of Jesus. Here's the second glimpse he gets. He gets a glimpse of spiritual conflict. Abraham Kuyper was very familiar with the powers of human government. He was, he was a prime minister of Netherlands for four years, between 1901 and 1905. But he understood that something far greater is at work in our world. Listen to what he wrote. He said, if once, just once, the curtain were pulled back and the spiritual world behind it came into view, it would expose to our spiritual vision a struggle so intense, so convulsive, sweeping everything within its range, that the fiercest battle ever fought on earth would seem by comparison a mere game. This is a man who lived through World War I, and he was in a position of power and influence during it. So he had a, he had a clear sight of the atrocities of World War I. He says, if we had a glimpse of the spiritual battle going on, that even World War I would seem by comparison a mere game. 
So in this chapter of Daniel, the curtain is pulled back slightly and we're given this glimpse of the intense spiritual struggle that is taking place that we cannot see. Now, I'm just, I'm going to be very upfront with you. These, these verses raise a lot of questions and they only offer a few answers. And so we just have to be okay with that. So here's what happens. An angel touches Daniel and speaks to him in verses 10 and 11. Now, this is different than the one Daniel sees in the vision. This is likely the angel Gabriel because he says in chapter 11, verse 1, that he had visited Daniel two years earlier, and that fits with the time frame of chapter 9. So Gabriel comes to visit Daniel, and the reason is because Daniel had been praying, verse 12, and something hinders his coming. Look at verse 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia opposed me for 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me after I had been left there with the kings of Persia. He, he elaborates just a little bit on this in his conversation later with Daniel. Look at verse 20. He says to Daniel, do you know why I've come to you? I must return at once to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I leave, the prince of Greece will come. However, I will tell you what is recorded in the book of truth. No one has the courage to support me against those princes except Michael, your prince. I mean, those are some cryptic statements, aren't they? And they, we want them to explain so much more like, uh, like you want to raise your hand and be like, what's going on here? I mean, these raise a lot of questions like, who are the princes of Persia? Who are the princes of Greece? How, how can they have power to keep an angel from, from doing what God wanted him to do for three weeks? Are, are these human princes? Are these angelic or demonic princes? Like, these are a lot of questions. So, so let me just share some of the things we only suspect and then some things we can be certain of. Here's what we suspect is that these are, he's referring to demonic creatures. So these are angels that had, that had disobeyed God, had rebelled against God, and had fallen. And their influence over national leaders encourages evil, specifically encourages persecution of God's people. And, and here's what we get a glimpse of, and at least we suspect, is that there seems to be some form of administration within the sort of demonic world. Later, the Apostle Paul will talk about the principalities and powers. And this suggests that there's some sort of organization hierarchy as they, as they try to fulfill the wishes of Satan. And we're not told exactly how they influence nations, how do they influence national leaders. Though here, there seems to be some strong connection between certain angels and nations. Now, listen, weird things have come out of this and we need to, we need to make sure we stay away from weird things that aren't in the Bible. That's, that's, you can write that down. Stay away from weird things that aren't in the Bible. That's just a, every sermon, if I don't say it, I mean it. Stay away from weird things that aren't in the Bible. So for a while there was this idea, maybe it still goes on, I haven't heard about it lately, this idea of praying for, over territorial demons. And, and like you try to name them and try to call them out and things like that. And it comes, it's taken from here. But that's not what this says. Like it's going way beyond what this says. So we don't see any examples of that. We just get these glimpses that, that there's this, conflict going on and there are demonic forces. The demonic forces have some level of organization and they seem to influence nations in some way. We also get some glimpses of angelic administration. Verse 21 calls Michael, your prince, seems to be referring to the nation of Israel. Verse 13, he's called one of the chief princes. In the book of Jude, he's referred to as the archangel or first angel, which implies a position of authority within God's angels. So, so here's what we don't know, then, is we don't know how angels or demons are organized. It seems that God doesn't think we need that information. 
But what we do is get these small glimpses that there is some organization with the unseen spiritual realm, and that includes influence at a national level. That's about all we know. But, but, but I think from this there are a few other things that we can be really certain of, and this is what I, wanna, I want you to really push in on. We can be certain that there is a spiritual world that we are not very aware of. There is a spiritual world we're not very alone. We are not alone, and this is both encouraging and sobering. It's encouraging because we're told that God actually sends his angels to minister to and protect his people, even though we, we are completely oblivious to them. It's sobering because our adversary, the devil, is seeking to trap us in his destructive schemes. He wants nothing more, brothers and sisters, than to trap you, harm you, hurt you, destroy you. In fact, we're told he's prowling around like a hungry lion seeking to devour those who love God. And so here's, I think, what that means when that illicit ad pops up on your computer screen. It's not random. Right? There's a scheming opponent seeking to catch you in his snare and destroy you if possible. When a coworker who loves to gossip, just happens to swing by in that moment when you are so frustrated with someone else, that's not by chance. When temptation comes at your most vulnerable moment, that is never mere coincidence. There is an unseen world. There is an invisible opponent who wants to destroy you because you belong to God. We can be certain of that. We can also be certain that help is coming. So just think about Daniel for a second. Daniel is discouraged. He's overwhelmed. And then he's, he's been fasting and praying for three weeks and nothing's happening. And then he learns in verse 13 that all of that time there was a champion that was fighting on his behalf. When it felt like nothing was happening, something was happening. Daniel felt alone, but he's not alone. Daniel felt powerless, but the power of heaven is working for him. And so this glimpse behind the curtain assures us that God is not still and he is not silent. That he is working in ways we can't fathom. You know, this glimpse protects us from the delusion that what we see is all there is. Like we live in the very rational West. Where no self-respecting person believes in angels and demons. No one believes in fairy tales. No one believes in an ancient serpent or a prowling lion. That's nonsense. We believe in machines. We believe in experiments. We believe in science. If you can't measure it, it doesn't exist. Yet our favorite stories have superheroes, aliens, vampires and zombies, dinosaurs and dragons. So why is it that we're convinced the only thing exists is what we can see and touch and measure and yet we all universally long for something beyond what we can see and touch and measure. Why aren't we content with the theory that if it can't be measured, it doesn't exist? I'm going to let C.S. Lewis answer. He says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, 
I must take care on the one hand never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings. And on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. What we see is an echo of the world we can't see. Like we know we know this deep down that there is more going on. There is something happening we can't perceive. And that's why there's this common human longing for a supernatural encounter. This, this longing stretches across generations in geography. And this longing comes from being made in the image of God. We are body and soul. We are matter and spirit. And that's why we feel in our souls that there is a spiritual world beyond our perception. And so the glimpse of it behind the curtain, what it does is it assures us we're not crazy. That there is a cosmic conflict between God and Satan that is animating everything we see. So Daniel, in his moment of weakness, gets a glimpse of the majesty of Christ and of spiritual conflict. And third, he gets a glimpse of unmerited love. So Daniel's overwhelmed by his vision of Jesus. Look at verse 8. I was left alone looking at this great vision. No strength was left in me. My face grew deathly pale and I was powerless. As someone told me after the first service, a retired preacher, that verse 9 is a verse that describes a lot of sermons. I heard the words he said, and when I heard them, I fell into a deep sleep <laughs> with my face to the ground. But he's overwhelmed by what he's seen. What does God do? Does God criticize Daniel for his weakness? I mean, when you sort of picture God in heaven, <sighs> shaking his head in disgust, Daniel's so feeble. No, not at all. Look at verse 10. Suddenly a hand touched me and set me shaking on my hands and knees. He said to me, Daniel, you are a man treasured by God. Understands the words I'm saying to you. Stand on your feet, for I have now been sent to you. After he said this to me, I stood trembling. God has this angel touch Daniel and assure him his love. Three times in chapters 9 and 10, Daniel is given an angelic assurance of God's love for him. Three times an angel sent by God says to Daniel, Daniel, God treasures you. So if Daniel, this man of great faith, if he still needs assurances of God's love in his 80s, then it's likely you and I need this assurance. Maybe this is why the Apostle Paul prays that Christians will be able to comprehend the length and width, height and depth of God's love and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge. See, brothers and sisters, we don't understand how much God loves us. You don't understand how much God loves you. I don't understand how much God loves me. In fact, in that very same prayer, Paul says, that God, he prays that God would strengthen us to, to do what? You expect him to say, strengthen us to fight battles, to stomp on serpents' heads, strengthen us to preach great sermons, strengthen us to evangelize, strengthen us to do all of these things. He says, I pray that God would strengthen them to understand how immense and extraordinary his love for us is. Here's what he's saying, that God's love is so great that if we understood it, we would be crushed 
by the realization of the depth of his love. That his love is so overpowering that our hearts have to be supernaturally fortified and reinforced so they don't explode when we begin to understand how much he loves us. And this is what's maybe most shocking. This love is undeserved. See, this chapter of Daniel highlights his weakness and inadequacy. Look at verse 15. While he was saying these words to me, I turned my face toward the ground and I was speechless. Suddenly, one with a human likeness touched my lips. I opened my mouth and said to the one standing in front of me, My Lord, because of the vision, anguish overwhelms me and I am powerless. How can someone like me, your servant, speak with someone like you, my Lord? Now I have no strength and there is no breath in me. So in the previous chapter, Daniel had confessed his sin and the sin of his people. He is a sinner who in in response to the vision of Jesus and the expression of love from the Father cannot speak. This is actually very similar to the experience a different prophet had. We're told in Isaiah 6 that Isaiah the prophet had a vision of God in his glory. And as a result of that vision, he could not speak. In fact, he says, "I, I Later, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. In other words, everything about me is wicked. When I see God in all of his glory, I know everything about me is wicked. I can't speak. And so what does God do? He sends an angel to the, to the fire of atonement where a lamb had been slaughtered. And he, and he took a coal from there and he touched Isaiah's lips. And there's a picture of his sin being atoned for because blood was shed in his place. It's ultimately a picture of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this is what happens to Daniel. God touches his lips. God takes away his sin. You see, God doesn't love Daniel because of Daniel's great wisdom or insight. God doesn't treasure Daniel because Daniel is a man of uncommon faithfulness and integrity. God loves Daniel the sinner. And in his grace, he atones for Daniel's sin. The supreme act of love is demonstrated by offering Jesus, his son, as the perfect lamb whose death could pay for every sin Daniel committed. In fact, Isaiah went on to prophesy that the wounds of Jesus would bring healing. And we see they bring healing here to Daniel. Grace poured out on Daniel in his weakness brings him strength. Now look at verse 18. Then the one with the human appearance touched me again and strengthened me. And he said, don't be afraid, you who are treasured by God. I'd like to stop again and say that to you if you're a Christian, if you're one who belongs to God by faith. Don't be afraid, you who are treasured by God. That description is not unique to Daniel. That is for all those who belong to God. Don't be afraid, you who are treasured by God. Peace to you. Be very strong. As he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. Three times Daniel is touched by a mediator sent by God. Three times he's assured of God's love for him. Listen, in the midst of all these visions, this chapter stands out because it doesn't seem to matter. 
Right? We have all these visions of these huge things that are happening in history and that will happen. And we're going to see again in chapter 11 and 12 all these huge things. And you have chapter 10 where in some sense nothing happens. Why is it here? Because in the midst of all these visions, God wants us to see this deeply personal, deeply comforting message that he loves Daniel. And he wants Daniel to know it. Brothers and sisters, God, through Jesus, sympathizes with our weaknesses because he himself has taken on our weaknesses. He here runs to the aid of one of his children so that that child will know how much his father loves him. Dane Ortland asks, I think, a very remarkable question. And I want to ask that question in just a moment, but the the answer, I think we get a glimpse of the answer here in the way that God comforts and encourages and strengthens Daniel in his weakness. So here's the question. He asks, what would it be like for a friend to take our two hands and place them on the chest of the risen Lord Jesus Christ? Would you just think about that for a minute? Your hands placed on the chest of the risen Lord. So that, like a stethoscope letting us hear the vigorous strength of a beating heart physically, Our hands let us feel the vigorous strength of Christ's deepest affections and longings. So what would it be like if our hands were placed on the chest of Jesus and in there we could feel the power of his deepest affections? What would we feel? And here's the answer. This is what we would feel. Beating out of Jesus' chest in our pain Jesus is pained. In our suffering, he feels the suffering as his own. His is a love that cannot be held back when he sees his people in pain. That's what we would feel beating out of the chest of Jesus. So we have decades of exile from Jerusalem. Combined with a vision of difficult future for God's people, they have brought Daniel pain. But Jesus has not left him alone. His love, undeserved and inexhaustible, cannot be held back from his people. So in his moment of great discouragement, Daniel finds strength here when God gives him a glimpse behind the curtain. Here's what he sees. He sees the majesty of Jesus, and it assures him that no earthly kingdom can stand against the Son of God. He sees a great spiritual battle, and he's assured that all of the schemes of Satan will be defeated in the end. And he sees the undeserved love of God and he is assured that he rests securely in the Father's affections. But how did this all start? What led Daniel to these revelations? What led him to these glimpses? Daniel prayed. Daniel's insights come from communion with the Father. He reads what God has written, and he responds in prayer. Brothers and sisters, never minimize the impact of the word and prayer. Prayer opens our eyes to see God at work, and it opens our hearts to his love for us. Will you join me in prayer now? Father, I pray that you will help us this week to see something of the love of Jesus for us. Lord, I'm not asking for visions of... Christ, you you have given us far more revelation in your word than Daniel received in all of those visions. You, You have shown us Jesus, as we read earlier, 
that we, who we have We've seen your glory and grace in the person of Jesus Christ. So I'm not, I don't mean visions, but I, I know there's two ways of seeing. There's a way of looking at words on a page. And there's a way of reading those words and seeing more of the love of Jesus for us. And I pray that you will help us to really see this week. I pray that you'll open our eyes to your glory, open our eyes to your wonder. Like the Apostle Paul prayed, I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters here. Lord, help us, strengthen us, strengthen our hearts, fortify and reinforce our hearts so that we can comprehend the height and depth, the width of God's love for us in Christ. Father, help us this week. Give us eyes to see. Help us turn our eyes to Jesus to look full in his wonderful face. Lord, give us the grace to do that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.